Welcome to the Mere Catholicity Podcast, pursuing ecumenism through theological discussions and dialogues. Well, hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Mere Catholicity Podcast. I am your host, as always, Jonah Saller. And before we get into today's episode, I do just want to remind you, I really love making podcasts. I really love having conversations with people. But I need support to continue to do it. If you want to, no pressure, but if you want to, there's a link below to join my locals community. It's a page where different Christians from different denominations, a lot of Anglicans, but um, maybe even some Catholics and other people, we're in there trying to grow into a deeper Catholicity together. It's a way you can support me, but also join with a like-minded Christian community. So if that's of interest to you, please click the link below. And if not, in the very least, subscribe, like, and share this video. Today, I am pleased to be joined for the third time on my podcast, Father Harmon Thomas. Um, he is a priest and a very, very brilliant man. I've enjoyed our conversations, and I think he's got a lot of really good things to say and a lot of good insights. And today, I'm especially excited for our subject matter um, that we'll be discussing today um, on the Episcopate, and specifically its biblical roots. I find that in a lot of conversations around this topic, the proof and the argumentation can oftentimes remain in the realm of historical theology as it relates to the church fathers, as it's progressed through history. But the biblical roots are very, very important, um, especially as Anglicans, we would say that while apostolic tradition is very important, we want to make sure that we can trace all of our faith to scripture itself as the, the supreme source. And so I'm really glad to get into this conversation today. Before we do, though, I want to give Father Harmon a brief moment to introduce himself for those who might not know him. So, Father Harmon, please. All right, thanks for having me on here again, Jonah. I, I always love chatting with you. We've had some great conversations. And uh, yeah, uh, like you say, I'm really excited uh, to talk about this, this topic. I think it's really important. Uh, and I, I don't think it's discussed, uh, like you say, it's not discussed as much as you would expect, especially within Anglican circles. Um, so yeah, I'm, uh, as you said, I'm a priest in the ACNA. Uh, I am currently uh, canonically resident in the Yellowstone Missionary District, which is uh, domiciled within the Western Anglicans. Uh, bishop Mark Zimmerman is currently acting as my bishop, and uh, but I'm geographically located in Vancouver, B.C., I'm doing a THM at Regent College on catechesis. Um, and uh, folks, the few folks who probably know about me know about, know about me because of catechesis. Uh, I wrote a, a curriculum to teach uh, the to be a Christian in Anglican catechism, the catechism of the ACNA uh, that kind of walks through that catechism in a way of, of forming folks as priests of the kingdom. And... Uh, that's kind of my, my passion project, but as, a, as an aside passion project, I have this biblical basis of the Episcopacy, and so I'm really excited to, to be chatting with you about that. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, this is a, an awesome subject and uh, really one that is central to, I think, the unity of the church, because mm -hmm. the Episcopacy, um, rightly understood, is a unifying feature of Catholic Christianity, yeah. and uh, to show, I think, some of our brethren who want to see it in the scriptures, that it is indeed a biblical concept mm -hmm. is, is very important. So I just want to maybe yeah. open up with um, just kind of an overview of mm -hmm. some maybe terminology uh, and some categories that we might be using as we go about this discussion. Yeah. So I'll, I'll turn it over to you. 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I, I think a few uh, terms to define that are really important and are often um, not given enough airtime in these discussions is actually even what are the biblical basis uh, bases of even the use of the word bishop or priest. Um, we all know deacon uh, because the, the Greek word that's used in the New Testament, diakonos, um, is usually transliterated in our English Bibles as deacon, even though the word means minister. Um, but most of our translations, uh, while they make that dis that translation choice with deacon, they don't make that choice with presbyter and episkopos, uh, which are the words for priest and bishop, uh, respectively. Um, and so, just as a as a way of clarifying that, in case folks don't know, uh, the English word bishop we actually get from kind of through through Old German um, back to New Testament Greek. Uh, bishop comes from the, it's a corruption of the German word biskof, uh, which is itself is a corruption, corruption of episkopos, uh, the Greek word that means overseer that we translate in most of our Bibles. Um, so the word bishop simply is the English translation of the word episkopos, uh, which is the word that's in the New Testament, um, as it's usually translated as overseer. And similarly, uh, the word priest is a corruption from the Greek, uh, or sorry, from it's a corruption from the German priester, which is a, itself a corruption again of the Greek um, presbyter. Uh, and so we we see that these terms, while the most of our translations choose to go with deacon or diakonos rather than translating it as minister, which is a kind of a more literalistic translation, uh, they make the opposite choice when it comes to presbyter and episkopos. Whereas it, uh, instead of translating it priest and bishop, they choose to translate it elder and um, overseer. Uh, so that's a, that's an important distinction that I think is worth making. So if, if people ask, you know, th these words, they're not in scripture. Well, they are. It's just that our translations have made certain choices uh, that are informed by interpretation uh, that may skew our perspective so, so as not to see the word bishop and priest in the New Testament. So I think that's an important foundation to lay. Uh, and we'll get into that a little bit later um, as well. Um, so the episcopate is simply um, a, a way of naming the office of the episcopos, the bishop, right? So it just means the office of bishop, right? And so the real question that uh, I think we'll be exploring, at least in the first half um, of our discussion, is going to be, uh, was this, this term overseer, episcopos, and the other term uh, presbyter and elder, were these proper offices within the apostolic church, uh, within uh, the book of Acts, for instance, or were these kind of more charisms uh, of leaders who happened to be in a less the kind of official uh, kind of leadership, right? And so we'll get into that a little bit later. But I think, honestly, those are kind of the two most important um, terms to define. Uh, another thing, another concept that I think is really important for us to discuss is that um, we're Anglicans. And we don't need to be, we don't need to apologize about that, right? And so there's a particular way of doing theology that Anglicans have that um, we don't need to apologize for, right? And so this, our discussion, I don't intend for this to be kind of the airtight argument that every Christian has to agree with. And I don't intend for our time to, to leave every Christian with no escape, right? You know, sure. um, I don't have time to make that kind of an airtight uh, argument. Um, but being Anglicans, we already have within our life uh, the polity of uh, bishop, priest, and deacon. 
Uh, and so we can kind of take that as an interpretive lens, right? So we're, we're kind of being prompted by our life together and by the history of the church, the tradition of the church to ask the question, uh, is this a biblical practice, right? Um, so this is more of a top-down sort of argument um, rather than it is. So if we were to read scripture without any bias, which is impossible, uh, would we find the threefold uh, polity of Anglicanism? Um, and uh, I think that's a far too complicated question for us to tackle here. Sure. Yeah. So, so let, let's get into some of the, the meat of this. Um, may, maybe the first place to start, um, and I don't, I don't mean to totally derail the outline, but one of yeah. the most common things that you hear is that bishop or overseer, as you noted, it's, it's mostly translated and presbyter, translated elder. These are used interchangeably mm-hmm. in the New Testament. Yeah. And, and so right. therefore, the Presbyterian form of government often is, mm. is appealed to through that kind of continuity that we see in, in the use of those terms. Mm-hmm. So how, how would we biblically begin to start to see a distinct office yeah. there? Or are we dealing with basically bishops being called out priests in a sense? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a good, it's a really good thing to point out. And I was hoping to get to that. Um, later anyway, but I think it's good to address here at the beginning. Uh, we actually do see um, the the office of bishop, the office of overseer, episcopos in the New Testament. It's, it, it is not as um, specific as we see it today, right? So one of the dynamics of this discussion is the fact that, uh, and so the, the, the question is always posed, okay, so the word is used, but that doesn't mean that we're talking about the same thing, right? Um, and to be sure, uh, the office of bishop has changed remarkably over the course of Christian history. Like we, we can even see that uh, throughout the Catholic tradition, right? So often in the Anglican tradition, we tend to see our bishops as administrators, right? Uh, which is definitely not what bishops were in the patristic period. Um, and so there is some change, but then the question is, uh, does that change necessitate a change in, in the ontological meaning of the office? Um, or is it have there been different emphases within this office that has remained the same over the course of time? Um, and I would argue that it's the latter, but we do see some um, solidifying um, and specification of what that office looks like over the course of the apostolic age. Um, and so we will talk about that. But what I do think is interesting is that we see the word episcopos applied both to the office of apostle and to the office of, of presbyter. Uh, in the New Testament. And so you almost kind of see there's this office of deacon, and then you have elder, and you have apostle, and episcopos sort of brackets both of those two, uh, both of those two offices within the church, right? Um, and what we see happen over the course of the first century of the church is that as the apostles die, um, and there are no, there are no new apostles to step in, right? There's no, there's no one who meets the qualification of apostle. Uh, the the space that's kind of created in there uh, is as that as that's vacated, this office of bishop of overseer of episcopos uh, comes to transition to be to replace sort of that apostolic space within the polity of the church, um, and we can see that happen. Um, so I'm actually in the beginning of my notes here. I have um, a quote from Saint Ignatius of Antioch. Um, and I, I think he's important to, to talk about because when it comes to the biblical basis of the episcopacy, many who don't affirm uh, the Catholic polity of the church will point to St. Ignatius as evidence that the church immediately got it wrong. Right. right. 
because St. Ignatius says some really striking and, uh, and honestly very powerful statements about the episcopacy. Um, and I'll include the one that I have on my notes here. Where St. Ignatius, this is in his letter to the Trallians. He says, in like manner, let all reverence the bishop as Jesus Christ, who is the son of the father. Apart from these, there is no church. Mm-hmm. Let all reverence the bishop as Jesus Christ. That's a really big statement to make, right? And so it, right. I think many of our, of our brothers and sisters who don't affirm the Catholic uh, polity would look at that and say, hey, that's not warranted in Scripture, right? And that is a massive break from what we see in Acts. Um, and my, my sort of thesis statement for this time together is to say that actually, no, he gets that from Scripture. Um, it's, it's, it's just that we don't see it as obviously as, as he did. Um, and so, yeah, we have um, the bishop standing in as Jesus Christ, at least according to St. Ignatius. We have yeah. to ask ourselves, where does he get that from? So before we get into that, um, I, have a, I have a few disclaimers I want to make. Um, sure. I think a, a lot of one of the reasons that this conversation is so difficult is because our our hackles tend to stand up as soon as we talk about this stuff. Because as soon as we talk about should the church have bishops, is the church comprised by the the episcopacy? Um, are bishops the essay, the essence of the church, or are they just the bene essay, just for the good of the church? Um, Suddenly, the question of validity comes up, right? If you start making an argument, though, yeah, bishops are the, the essence of the church. Uh, inevitably, what people hear is, oh, if I don't have a bishop, then then my church is invalid or my faith is invalid. Um, and I don't think that's ne- necessarily a leap to make. Um, I think, basically, we can simply say what we know what we know. And as Anglicans, we know that the episcopacy is part of, is part of the essence of the church. Um, and I do think that that is, that is clear. Uh, at least in the Catholic tradition, that is that is clear, right? And so we don't have to take the next st- next step and say, uh, well, therefore we know that X, Y, or Z is invalid. Um, first of all, I think validity is one of the least helpful uh, theological categories that's out there, right? Yeah. Uh, especially yeah. if we're going to be sola or prima scriptura Christians, there's no, there, you can't point to the Bible and say, oh, this is how you ca- this is the formula for calculating the percentage of validity that a particular communion has. Right. We can't right. do that. Um, and God is faithful, right? Um, God is not here to split hairs. He's not here to try to figure out, okay, which of my people are, are actually following me validly. It's not a helpful category. Um, and so as we're having this discussion, I hope that none of our listeners are hearing either of us say, um, oh, my church is invalid or my faith is invalid. That's just not where we're going. Um, right. And uh, what we do know um, as Anglicans is that we have bishops. And they're biblical, and it's good. Um, this is a means of grace that God has given us. Uh, and, and in line with that, uh, I think Richard Hooker is a really good example to point to. Um, he argues vociferously for the episcopate, for the episcopate, right? Um, and uh, he is he is a champion of the episcopacy. But at the same time, he is not afraid to say, "Yeah, God is absolutely at work in Geneva. He's absolutely at work in Germany. Uh, he, he's he's under no compulsion to say that." Oh. Because these churches don't have bishops, they're invalid, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I don't think we have to take that next step either. So this is the stakes are not. I'm not trying to make the stakes super high as we're having this right. discussion. I'm not trying to say that um, any of our brothers or sisters who don't have bishops, their faith or their church is not valid. Um, right. So I think that's a necessary disclaimer to get put out there. Um, yeah, yeah. I want to have this conversation charitably. Uh, I think bishops are the essence of the church, but I also think that Jesus is at work wherever his people are. 
you know, and I don't think we have to go much further than that. Yeah. So, yeah. I, yeah. I any, totally agree. Yeah. 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 Any comments uh, kind of before I launch into some of the, the weeds here? Yeah. I, maybe, maybe just briefly on that. Um, the way I've often described it, cause I, I completely agree with you. I think that the term of valid versus invalid is just categorically mm. unhelpful. Um, yeah. it, it leaves people with hurt feelings and it ultimately doesn't actually explain anything. It has no explanatory power. Right. So I think we yeah. need to, as Anglicans, like you said, not be ashamed to stand next to the faith that we have inherited, the Catholic faith, and yeah. say, yeah, and that includes bishops, and bishops are of the essence of mm-hmm. the church. And and really, I think the way that I've tried to frame it to some of my friends who who have asked me, like, if bishops are the essence of the church, because they'll they'll go to that category, does that mean that my church is yeah. invalid? And I what yeah. I like to say is it's not about valid versus invalid. It's about the means yeah. of grace that offers assurance. And Christ, right. through the sacraments, offers us assurance. And the mm-hmm. holy orders, they are given to the church as a means of assurance that we belong to Christ. So in yeah. terms of the assurance aspect, assurance that we are in the church, assurance that we have sacraments, things like that, I, f- I think the bishop is given for that purpose. But that doesn't mean that you're yeah. valid. It just means that the, the kind right. of assurance that that provides, that Christ gifted his church, is found there yeah. in, in, in that category. So I found that to be kind of a helpful distinction. But um, yeah, right. we don't need to dwell on that too much longer. I just, I, I do want people to know that, um, yeah, neither one of us are trying to just condemn a whole swath of Protestant Christians and say, like, right, you guys don't count. Um, if anything, yeah. Absolutely. We believe that Christ is not bound to his sacraments. We are, you know, that's, yeah. that's why we, right. we stand where exactly. we do, but Christ is not bound yep. to his sacraments. Um, right. So exactly. yeah, let, let's, let's get into the, the biblical text and, and specifically mm-hmm. dealing with Ignatius. Um, these yeah. are, like you said, profound claims that he's making. And mm-hmm. if he's making these claims, we want to assume that either he's horribly wrong or that he's thoroughly biblical. Um, right. So how do we address that? Yeah, definitely. So I think uh, one of the first things for us to consider is the fact that the church didn't start in a vacuum. Right. Uh, I think, uh, especially with, with the, the rise of religious studies, uh, as Protestants, we are far too tempted to think of Christianity as this entirely new religion that just kind of started as a grassroots movement in, in the homes of the apostles or the early followers. And they were just kind of building things up from the, from the, from the ground uh, from scratch. Um, and that's just not true. You know, uh, we've discussed this before, I think in some of our other discussions, the fact that uh, all of the early Christians were Jews and they di- and they saw their following of Christ, uh, not as a breaking away from their Jewish faith, but as the fulfillment of it. Right. And so they inherited the old Testament as their Bible. Yeah. They inherited the practices of the old Testament as their practice, um, but those practices and that reading of the Old Testament transformed as they read it and practiced in light of Christ, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think what's really important for us to do is to look at Acts um, and to make this connection of, okay, so what is what was the, the worship and the polity that these early Christians took for granted? And it was the polity of the temple, right? Um, early in Acts, we see that the, the Christians, they're still worshiping in the temple, they're still observing the, the liturgical calendar of the temple. Um, Paul, in uh, uh, I think it's in one of his letters, I should have made a note of this. In one of his letters, he mentions the fast, 
right? Mm-hmm. Without any qualification, without any descriptor. Um, if he just calls it the fast, we know from the, the liturgical calendar of the time that it was the fast leading up to the Day of Atonement, right? Um, he just calls it the fast, which means that he presumes his readers uh, to be practicing to know what that fast is, right? Uh, we know that Paul continues to mark time by this, the, when Pentecost falls. Um, so we know that the early church is following, uh, is shaped by, assumes uh, the practice and the polity of the temple. Um, and actually, St. Ignatius uh, draws on this as well. So in the same quote that I just gave, um, the, the part of that quote is he says, so in like manner, let all reverence the bishop, as we said earlier. But then he goes on to say the priests, let all reverence the priests as the Sanhedrin of God. And as the assembly of the apostles, apart from these, there is no church, right? So he's actually, he is explicitly drawing from the temple polity as something that is shaping the, the polity of the church, right? Uh, and we know that early, so it, all, the, all the readers of Acts know that throughout the early um, chapters of Acts, we, where do we find the believers worshiping? We find them worshiping in the courts of the temple, right? Um, so there's no, there's no clear break. There's no um, sense that, oh, now we're Christians. We don't worship in temples. We worship in house churches, right? Um, all of the early uh, expectations of the church in Jerusalem was, oh, we have the temple, we worship in the temple. It's not until they get kicked out of the temple that we start seeing all of these gatherings in Jerusalem outside of the temple, right? Then we have to ask ourselves, um, what was the polity of the temple at the time that these Christians would have assumed, right? Uh, And throughout the book of Acts, we see that um, the, the temple polity is chief priests, and the council of the elders, right? So it's kind of this twofold. Um, and some some commenters would point out that, that there were also still Levites who were serving. So you kind of have this threefold order um, of chief priests, council of elders, and Levites. Um, and uh, so we see this, that here's an example in, in Acts 22, verses four through five, uh, St. Paul is preaching and he says, I persecuted the way Christianity to death binding and delivering to prison both men and women as, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Uh, so we, we see here that, um, so this is one verse, uh, the polity is high priest, council of elders, um, and presumably from context, we have the Levites there as well. Um, and Throughout Acts, this is kind of the, the polity that we see. We see this again. So if folks want to kind of follow along in scripture um, or just kind of see if I'm not making stuff up, they can look at uh, Acts 4, verse 5, 4, verse 23, 6, 12, and 22, 5. Those are all references to the temple polity uh, where you see the chief priests and the elders, right? So that's uh, chief priests and the presbyteros. Um, yeah. And then we see uh, that these this same polity begins to be practiced in the early church with the exception of rather than high priests, we have apostles. Uh, so in, in first Timothy uh, uh, chapter four, verse 14, we, uh, Paul tells Timothy, do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Um, and this is an ep- Ephesus. Timothy's in Ephesus. Uh, you can also look at Acts 11 verse 30, Acts 14, verse 21, and that's um, the Council of the Elders in Antioch. And then for the church in Jerusalem, you have uh, 15, verse 2, 15, verse 4, verse 6, and verse 22. 
Um, and in uh, Acts 15, again, this is the Jerusalem church. Um, this is where the apostles are, right? And so in verse 15, um, the stock phrase that's used for temple polity, which is the chief priests and the council of the elders, that stock phrase is picked up and carried over into the, the apostolic church with the exception that replacing they replace the chief priests with apostles. And so instead mm. of chief priests and in, in the elders in the church, you see the apostle and the elders. So the, the early church was very intentional to carry over the polity from the temple because this was the polity that they knew, right? Because it's not a new religion. Right. Um, so it, what's also really important to mention, uh, to get to your point earlier about um, is the episcopate, is it a separate office or is this another office or a role maybe that presbyters play? Uh, in favor of the Presbyterian interpretation, uh, in Antioch, uh, when Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem before he gets arrested, uh, he calls um, the uh, he calls the elder to him uh, to to speak with them and give them one last speech. Sorry, this isn't Antioch. This is in Ephesus. Uh, Paul calls the elders to him, and he refers to them as overseers, as episcopoi. Right. So there is one reference um, in the Bible to the presbyter and the episcopos, the 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 elder and the bishop, uh, the overseer being the same office, right? So that's that's kind of where this Presbyterian argument comes from. So you get that idea of, okay, here's two descriptions of office um, that may or may not line up one-to-one. Um, one, one other argument that you hear against this, I didn't have this in my notes, I meant to put it in, uh, is, the, is the argument that actually these words, I mentioned this earlier, um, these words, presbyter and episcopos, maybe they don't refer to an office, maybe they're charisms, right? So maybe it's mm -hmm. the charism of, of more a more informal leader to be an elder, or maybe these are just elders in the church, right? Um, maybe these are just old men in the church who, by, by virtue of their years, are given a place of, of honor and leadership. Um, and on the other hand, with Episcopos, uh, perhaps these are some of these elders uh, have this over this gift of oversight, right? So they're they're kind of overseeing, supervising this the local church. That's often the interpretation that our free church brothers and sisters uh, will bring to the table. Yep. Um, but we have actually in, in the least likely of allies in this, uh, Bill Mounts. Are you familiar with that name? I am. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone. Anyone who has taken uh, biblical Greek has, is having PTSD flashbacks right now, <laughs> as Bill Mounts is the author of The Basics of Biblical Greek um, and a few other books that go into more advanced Greek. And funnily enough, um, he, in his chapter, I want to say it's his chapter on um, the definite article in Greek, uh, different ways that the definite article uh, operate in biblical Greek. I want to say he uses um, the article as an, ex as an example uh, he uses, sorry, he uses um, the office of Episcopos um, as an example of when the article operates to demonstrate an office, hmm. um, where he points that he uses the, the example of ton episcopon, which is the genitive plural of Episcopos, right? So of the, of the uh, overseers, um, where that's used in such a way, I don't, I'm not going to lie to you. I, I can do enough Greek to like write my sermons when it comes to all of this really minute gr grammar stuff. I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me what he's saying, but I'm just putting this out there. Bill Mounts of all people who I guarantee you is not an Anglican uh, would tell you that the use of the article in the new Testament uh, in front of presbyter and, and Episcopos um, is actually denoting it as an office 
and not merely as a charism. Um, so it's Bill Mounts. If you have a problem with it, take it up with him. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of what you got there. You get this image in the, uh, of the early church intentionally imitating, uh, the temple polity. Um, so as to have apostle council of elders and deacons, right. Uh, to kind of mirror the chief priests, council of elders, and the Levites, right? So we get this threefold uh, polity from the, from the temple. Of course, the question uh, people are gonna put to us then is like, well, so is that binding on us? Um, was that merely a, a convenient move for them uh, because they could take for granted the temple polity and uh, that wasn't necessarily meant to be put down for, for generations to come, that this is the polity we should do. Um, I don't really care to have that argument. We can have that another time if someone wants to. Um, I'm pretty satisfied to say, hey, this is actually in scripture. And, and sure, even if it's not pres prescriptive, it's, it's just descriptive, it's in scripture. And we want to be scriptural, right? So um, I think that's enough for us. Uh, and again, as Anglicans, we, can, we don't have to apologize for our Anglican polity. Um, yeah, so first point, we're getting this from the temple. The early church is wanting to emulate the temple. Uh, that could be theologically fruitful um, to look at. Is is the church? Is there something to uh, the theology behind the choice to imitate the temple? I don't know. That's kind of beyond my scope right here. Um, but yeah, before I move to the next point, do you have any questions or comments about that? Yeah, well, I, I think it's interesting the the parallel there that you're making between the temple polity and the early church mm -hmm. and the way that they understood polity, because I think even those who might not hold to an Episcopal form of government, when you look at the early church and you study it, you can tell yeah. very clearly that on a worship level, they're seeking mm -hmm. to follow in continuity with temple worship. You know, the right. Eucharist becomes this, this centerpiece sacrifice. Um, mm -hmm. You even have the way in which, obviously this is some sometime down the road but you have to wonder why were churches built when they started to be constructed in this threefold uh nave narthe narthex nave right. sanctuary pattern if if there wasn't this mm -hmm. understanding that we are the continuation of the temple worship and so i do think that just and like you can see that with your eyes you can go to old right. ancient churches and see that there was this yeah. intentional uh desire to be in continuity with that so i think yeah. it is logical to say okay if they believed that they were the continuation of temple worship now in a new covenant mm. context, why would they divorce the polity of the old covenant completely from right. this, this new covenant understanding um, of the yeah. temple? Um, so yeah, that, that's very, very interesting to me, very compelling. Um, but yeah, that, that's about all I have right now. I'd yeah, continue. Yeah, I'm, uh, this I, is fascinating. Yeah. Great. Um, yeah, and, and I think we've talked about this before in a previous episode, um, but just how um, how deep this expectation to continue temple worship goes. Um, I, I think I mentioned one time, uh, maybe it was on the previous episode that I was with you on, um, how in the book of Matthew, uh, when Jesus is talking, he has this comment about, you know, if, you're, if you are bringing a gift to the altar and you have something against your brother, put down, leave your gift and go be reconciled. Um, by most accounts, the book of uh, the Gospel of Matthew is probably being written after AD 70, after the destruction of the temple, right? Um, and so for Matthew to think it's significant to include this saying in his gospel, so for his readers, 
after the temple has been destroyed, after there is no longer any altar, uh, for him to say, bring, uh, leave your gift at the altar before you bring it, they'll be reconciled, right? So he presumes that, th- that there is an altar at which his readers worship. Right. At the very least. Right. Right. Um, otherwise, it would stand to reason that uh, he wouldn't have included the saying of Jesus because it wouldn't be relevant to his re- readers anymore. Right. So yeah. I just kind of include that as an aside. Yeah. I was just going to say, uh, too, um, even the the way in which St. Paul speaks in 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 first corinthians chapter 10 um Mm -hmm. as he's talking about the eucharist i'll just read it really quick Uh, starting in verse 16 he says the cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of christ the bread that we break is it not a participation in the body of christ because there is one bread we who are one body for we all we are one body for we all partake of the one bread consider the people of israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar he's mm-hmm. clearly tying a parallel between the eucharist and the old covenant right. worship of of the altar and you see this show up in the book right. of hebrews as well um, which yeah. i do believe was, was exactly. likely authored by paul in, in chapter 13 where it says um, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. This is chapter 13, verse 10. So there's even right. in scripture, a uh, very yeah. clear reference to an altar in a Christian context, which to me tells right. me this is not simply an idea that developed once the apostles had died out and people were starting to yeah. have these strange ideas. This is rooted in scripture. It's biblical and it flowed right. out of that source. Yeah, exactly. And and I think it's really important that you point out uh, the book of Hebrews, because one of the overarching arguments of the book of Hebrews is that we worship in the way that we do, not because the temple in and of itself or the tabernacle in and of itself is our authority, but because the temple and the tabernacle are designed after the heavenly temple where Christ is now our high priest. That's right. right. Um, and that's the whole rationale for the book of Hebrews. Um, and if if the heavenly temple on which the earthly temple and tabernacle were based has not changed, which it doesn't. Um, and that's also part of the, the author's um, point. Then our worship, our polity should not change. Uh, this is kind of beyond the scope of what I was hoping to get into. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think it suffices to say that uh, the early church was very intentional to imitate and mirror the temple polity. Um, yeah. And maybe it, t- it took them getting booted out of the temple for them to realize oh, wow, we apostles were the new high priests, right? Um, I'm sure that was pretty pretty terrifying for them. Um, but uh, this, this is kind of the, the picture that we get. So, um, so, so far what we've talked about is has really been saying, okay, so the temple polity is kind of where the early church got their inspiration for their polity. Uh, but also so far, we've only applied the word episkopos to the presbyter, right? So if that's the case, then uh, you would think that actually maybe um, the Presbyterian polity is actually the more biblically faithful. Um, and so I do think it's really important that we emphasize, no, actually the apostles also understood themselves as, as episcopoi, um, as, as bishops, um, by right of being apostles. Um, and this is actually something, someone pointed this out to me quite recently, um, and I'm pretty excited to share it. Um, the, the Septuagint of Psalm 109, which is one of the most intense imprecatory psalms out there. It's the one that's like calling down curses upon uh, the one who um, betrayed David. Um, 
the Septuagint of Psalm 109 actually includes the word episcopane, uh, which mm. is another declension of the word episcopos, right? So it's it's the same word declined differently. Um, and this is, is actually that? the psalm. Sorry, uh, gosh, I think it's uh, verse 4. Um, I should have included that in my notes. Psalm 109, verse 4. That okay. Let another take his office. Um, is that right? Verse 8. Verse eight, yeah. May may his days yeah, be few. May another, t- yeah. May his days be few. May another take his office. That's right. Yeah. Um, so most of you who are listening will probably recognize that that's actually the verse that Peter uses in Acts one to justify um, raising up, laying hands on another apostle, right? So bringing bringing in someone else to fulfill the number of twelve of the apostles after Judas betrayed, and he uses that verse to um, to describe Judas, right? Um, and, uh, the, so, so the word office, the word that's translated as office in our translations in the Septuagint, uh, so the translation, the Greek translation of the, uh, the salt, the old Testament that Jesus and his, uh, apostles were familiar with, uh, that translation actually has the word episcopane for the word office, right? Mm. Um, so on one hand, that kind of backs up this idea that episcopos is is an office, right? So part of the so, but this goes to say actually the very nature of the word um, within the semantic range of this word is is simply office, right? Um, but actually, so uh, because of this, in the King James version, the Authorized version, um, they actually translate this as bishopric. Uh, so when um, yeah, so in in Psalm one hundred nine, uh, I, I can't remember if it's in the Psalm or if it's in Acts one. Uh, it says, you know, let him, let another take his bishopric. Um, so again, emphasizing the, the point that this word episkopos um, is the word bishop, right? Um, and so we actually see here um, the, the intentional raising up of a new member to the bishopric, to the office of episcopane within the apostles, within the number of the apostles. And it's actually using this verse to justify, hey, um, Judas betrayed us. We have an incomplete number of this this office, and we need to raise someone else up into this office, right? Um, and Matthias was able to be raised up as an apostle because he met the requirements of an apostle by having actually seen Christ in the flesh, right? Um, what's also really interesting about this word, episcopane, is that while it means office, uh, while it has this, um, well, it has the connotation of bishopric, of, of overseer, um, it also means visitation, uh, as in divine visitation, right? So this this office is one uh, which actually communicates the the presence of God. Hmm. Um, so at what this is, I think this is really interesting because it's, I think it's telling that we call a bishop's visit of a church a visitation. And visitation yeah. is it's not a, you know, this isn't a, it's not just a fancy way of saying uh, visit or check in, check up, right? Um, when you have a visitation, this is, especially, it's, it's a big deal, right? This is, there's, there's authority that is coming down, uh, that is coming to bring order, that is coming to, um, to set things right. You know, um, so we, we typically think of the visitation. We think of the visitation of God, right? We think of Christ coming in his first advent. And we look forward to his visitation. 
uh, in the second. Um, and so the use of this word, particularly in the Septuagint, and, and that this is the verse that is used um, by the apostles to justify raising up Matthias, uh, this actually kind of begins to inform, I think by itself, it's not strong enough, but it begins to inform a question that could be actually, did the apostles understand their role in this episcopos role, their, their vocation as overseers, um, as episcopane? Um, is it possible that they could have understood themselves as actually being uh, somehow part and parcel to divine visitation? Right. Wow, um, yeah. So we're just kind of going to pose that question. Uh, but it's enough to show us that actually the apostles, the early church understood uh, the apostolic ministry in mirroring the temple polity as apostle, council of the elders, deacons, um, and that the those upper two offices, uh, both the presbyter and the episcopos, uh, but, sorry, both the presbyter and the apostle have a um, uh, have the office of episcop episcopos as well. Right. Um, and presumably this exp the expression of Episcopos, uh, it differs based on whether or not the, the person holding that office is a member of the Council of the Elders or is an apostle. Right. I see. Um, so that's kind of that's that's the, the picture that I'm trying to paint for us here, looking at the, the text of Scripture. Um, and that's kind of what I've got so far. Any comments on that? Yeah, just. I, I want to make sure I'm wrapping my head around this, and especially for those mm. those listening. Can you just kind of repeat the last part that you just said and just clarify the the term episkopos has a relationship to both the council of elders as well as the apostles? In what way? I just want to make sure I'm getting that clear. Yeah, so we we see this word episcopane or episkopos it being applied to both of these offices in the New Testament, right? So. Um, and even the fact that uh, that St. Peter himself in chapter five of first first Peter, uh, he calls himself an elder. Right. Even though he's right. an apostle. Right. Um, he calls himself a presbyter. And so uh, we had this we had the sense that there's um, this this office, both. Apostle and presbyter elder. Um, both of these offices are overseer, are episcopos in the yeah. apostolic church. Um, however, we see this this office of episcopos being exercised differently based upon whether or not one is an elder only or an elder and apostle. Got Does that it. make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Thank um, you for that. And yeah, you bet. And not to beg the question too much, but I do think that this is kind of where we get this sense of you know once a deacon, always a deacon; uh, once a priest, always a priest. Um, that these uh, the ordination is not a matter of abolishing or annihilating your previous. Uh, vocational identity, but it is actually building upon that foundation, right? Yeah. I never stopped being laity as a priest and in the same way that I never stopped being a deacon, you know? Right. Um, right. And the fact that St. Peter can can address uh, the the council of elders um, in his letter uh, in First Peter and address himself as a fellow elder, uh, I think that speaks to this fact that, um, yeah, once, once a priest, always a priest, you know? Um, and so... Uh, yeah, so that's kind of my my point there. Um, I was really kind of bowled over uh, when I saw Episcopane showing up in that verse. Um, yeah, that's in, that's in Psalm profound. Um, yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. Super it's cool. Very cool. Uh, yeah. So um, with that, uh, my main point there is to kind of point out that okay, we have this mirror of the temple polity. Uh, we have this understanding of the the bishop um, as an office. Uh, but it's an office that in the apostolic church is shared 
um, in different ways and different expressions of it by the presbyter versus the apostle. Um, and what I want to make a case for here is, again, getting back to uh, St. Ignatius's understanding of the, the episcopate. Um, so we can, we can maybe, if I've, if I've made a good enough argument, we can agree that there, that there is this understanding of a different office um, of bishop with different expressions uh, based on whether it's the, the apostle or the presbyterate at this point in the early church. Uh, but then the question still remains, is, is, uh, is St. Ignatius, is he kind of transforming or changing the understanding of what a bishop is uh, based on um, what, we, what we see in his letters? Is, is he changing what's happening in the, in the New Testament? Is he adding on to it and maybe corrupting it, as some of our uh, friends might say? Um, and I want to say categorically no. Um, I, I think that actually we have a very, very strong case in the New Testament for the office of overseer, the office of bishop, as an office that is uh, mediating the presence of Christ himself. Um, and I want to point us to um, a case study, kind of looking through the book of 2 Corinthians as our source for seeing this. Um, and I think it's I think it's really funny that uh, 2 Corinthians is, I think it's an underappreciated book. Oh, I, I don't think is. I've ever met anyone who says that 2 Corinthians is their favorite book of the Bible. Have you? No, I don't think so. Yeah, that's very interesting. Hmm. It's it's funny. So it's it's funny because I love, I might say it's one of my favorites. It's, I love this book. If only because St. Paul is at his sassiest in this book. Uh, yeah. he, he gets, he's angry. He's argumentative. Um, he gets sarcastic. It's 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 really funny, you know. Being distant and like not being the subject of his ire, it's really fun to read and, and laugh at the silly Corinthians until you start to realize that I'm guilty of the same things. <laughs> but uh, it's a great book. Um, and I, what I've noticed is that in most exegesis and preaching of this book, um, it's the most subject I think to being taken piecemeal rather than being preached. Um, in context, and hmm. that uh, I know plenty of people who, uh, if you ask them about Second Corinthians, they could probably name for you a few power verses out of this out of this book, right? So they could name, um, you know, from glory to glory, we are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, right? So from chapter three, or um, he he made him to, who knew no sin to be to be sin for us, right? Uh, in chapter five, you've got jars of clay in chapter four. Um, you have, we have one of our most famous offertory sentences in chapter eight. There's a lot of like power verses that are found in this book, but I, I rarely do I ever see this book preached, um, taking the context of the whole book. Hmm. Right. Um, and I think that that's on purpose because the context of the book is not fun. Again, like St. Paul is at his angriest. This is, this is not a fun letter. Um, and the, so to give you guys a, a picture, if you guys were to read, um, this whole book in one sitting, I think a far different reading of Second Corinthians would, would come out of the woodwork for you than you may have had beforehand. Uh, so in case you've forgotten, if you've ever taken a class or if you've just never really studied this book, uh, a bit of context is, of course, this is the second letter to, to Corinth. Um, and in the first letter, we see that already the Corinthians are they're kind of, they're not being great. Um, they're disobeying Paul. They're questioning his authority. Um, and there's already some hints that some other leaders have come into the church that are questioning St. Paul's authority. Um, and we find in, in the, in second Corinthians that those leaders have really like, they've got an entrenched in this community and they have, they are making it like their project to undermine Paul 
um, and to assert themselves as uh, the apostolic leaders of the Church of Corinth. And so uh, later in the in the in the book, uh, Paul refers to these people as super apostles, which is probably a either he's being sarcastic or that's actually a term that they're referring to themselves. But regardless, there are these people who are claiming to be the true apostles of of Corinth um, over and against uh, Paul and Timothy and Apollos. Um, and Paul's not having it. He's, he's really angry. Um, and he actually sees this as the root of all the other problems that are happening in this church. Um, and so we can presume from some of the rhetoric in 2 Corinthians that these super apostles, they're trying to undermine Paul by saying, you know, he's, he's not well-spoken. He's, a, he's not a flashy guy. You know, he's, he's balding. He's small. He's not, very, he's not a very good speaker. Um, and they're, basically what we can kind of infer is that these people being Greek, um, being Ro- Roman citizens in, in a Roman colony in Greece, uh, they have, the, again, kind of just the, the ideal uh, Roman citizen as kind of like the best person you can be, right? So this, this free, powerful, suave, well-learned philosopher kind of person, like that's what they think an apostle should be. Uh, and Paul, this balding, apparently not very great speaking person, um, they're like, yeah, this guy doesn't deserve to be your apostle. You should make us your apostles, right? And so because that's the context, um, we see in this book, Paul is actually, his, the, the argument throughout this book is, no, we're your apostles. This is what apostolic ministry is. This is what apostolic authority looks like. Submit to our authority is essentially what he's saying. And so um, what is one of the interpretive keys that I think is super important for this book that we're not really used to in reading a, a lot of Paul's letters is that we have to pay super close attention to when Paul is saying us versus you. Hmm. We're used to reading Paul's letter, Paul's letters as when he says us, we think he refers to all Christians, right? So when he makes a comment about us, we have been saved by Christ or, you know, we are saved by faith. Um, We rightly in those other letters of his interpret that as a statement that he's making about all Christians. Right. But because in this letter, particularly in particular, Paul is making an argument for his authority as their apostle over them. We have to pay very close attention to Paul's use of, of the word you and the word we and us. And nine times out of 10 in this letter, when Paul says we are us, he's not making a comment about all Christians. He's making a comment about the apostol- their apostolic ministers, about the, the apostolic ministry. Hmm. Right. And so to give you guys an example, um, just starting right out of the gate uh, in uh, chapter one, um, you can see this in uh, from verses three to seven and 15 to 22. uh, But I'll quote for you verses 20, 21 to 22. And Paul says, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Right? We are used to reading that language and thinking when he says us, that he's talking about all Christians. But as you can see, he's contrasting in this verse, us versus you. Yeah. When he says us, he's talking specifically as Paul and Timothy, the authors of this letter. Right? Because again, the the occasion that is occasioning this letter is the division in the Corinthian church that is questioning Paul and Timothy's authority as apostles. Hmm. So Paul is, is 
throughout this letter, I'm going to give you some more examples. Throughout this letter, he is saying us, apostles, over and against you, the people of Corinth, who are under Paul's authority as, his, as their apostle. Uh, so we see that there. We also see this. Uh, this is another um, kind of power verse that I've heard a good deal taken out of context. This is 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through 17. And Paul says, uh, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always lead, leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God. In the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So you see, there's, there's a constant comparison between us and us and you. Yeah. Well, once, once you see it, it's um, like, and, uh, you, you, I said, once you see it, you can't unsee it's it. It's wow. That's powerful. That's very powerful. Exactly. Yeah. So I've only ever heard this verse uh, preached as like, hey, you know, as as Christians, we are the fragrance of Christ in the world. I've always heard it preached in the missional sense, yeah. right? So yeah, this is for all of us. We are called to be the aroma of Christ in the world. That's not what Paul's saying. What he's saying is that we, the apostolic ministers, we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are perishing, but also among those who are saved, right? Mm-hmm. So if that, that means that, so those who are being saved are us, right? Those who are not part of the apostolic ministers, right? Yeah. So clearly, clearly he's making distinguishing there. And you may, that's even more clear when you as you go on to verse, verse 17, because he says yeah. in verse one, right? So yeah. I included, uh, we, we're so used to breaking these chapters up that we actually miss a lot of the argument, you know, um, in verse one, are we beginning to commend ourselves to you again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation from to you, right? Yeah. Um, Paul, Paul is making a statement about the apostolic ministry. Um, and so to go further on, I have two more examples um, to really make my point. And I'll actually draw on these last two examples a good deal more. But we're already getting an idea of what he sees the apostolic ministry to be, right? Um, he, is, he is saying that the ministers, these apostolic ministers, they are the ones who are the fragrance of Christ. Right? Yeah. So we're already getting this this sense that maybe Saint Ignatius is not making this stuff up, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, so to keep to keep going, because um, it gets better. Second uh, Corinthians five. This is kind of the power verse that everyone knows. Second Corinthians four. Right. Paul says, "From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away." Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Wow. Yeah, so this this is one of the, this, this was the verse that did it for me. Because we're so used to hearing this passage preached as all of us are ambassadors for Christ, right? To be a Christian means to be an ambassador for Christ on mission, uh, who are representing Christ's presence to the world to bring them into the kingdom. And that's not untrue. But it's not what Paul's saying here. Again, in context of this letter, Paul is, Paul is losing the um, the loyalty of these Corinthians. They ha they have broken away from him. He's recognizing there needs to be reconciliation between him and between this church, right? Um, so for him to say, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. He's not saying that all Christians are ambassadors for Christ and through all Christians, God is appealing to non-Christians to come to faith. Paul believes that, but it's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is that we, the apostolic ministers, we are the ambassadors for Christ. And God is making his appeal through these apostolic ministers, through us, through me and Timothy. Paul says, we implore you, Paul and Timothy implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Hmm. What Paul is saying here is that to be reconciled to the apostolic ministers is to be reconciled to God because they're, they are, um, they're a broken relationship with Paul and Timothy by going after these super apostles. Right? Uh, this becomes even more clear on in, uh, in chapter seven uh, and in chapter eight. Um, but Paul, he's, he's not making a small statement here. He is saying as an ambassador for Christ. So this is, um, this is a, a term that has some cultural uh, capital, right? Uh, in the in the Roman Empire, especially in the colonies, which which Corinth was, Corinth was a Roman colony in Greece, which means that if there's an ambassador, that ambassador of the Roman Empire represented the body of the emperor himself. Right. An attack on the uh, ambassador was considered to be an attack on the emperor himself. Right. Paul is not using this language in like a neutral uh, space out of the blue. What he's saying is. We represent Christ. We are the we are bringing to you the presence of Christ in our persons as ambassadors of Christ. And so, when when Paul says, "We implore you, be reconciled to God," that is the equivalent of Jesus speaking through him. Mm. Yeah, that's his understanding here, right? Um, so, if we already have this idea that the apostolic ministers that are the fragrance of Christ, here we actually get more than that. We get the voice of Christ, the reconciling work of Christ through the apostolic minister, right? Is that tracking? That makes oh, sense? Yeah, it absolutely. It's making sense. It's blowing my mind. Cause I've, I have never, <laughs> I have never read second Corinthians right. in this way. And it just, it opened up right? the whole book to me profoundly. Yeah, I'm going to have to just sit with this and read it over the next couple months. <laughs> it's an amazing, uh, amazing interpretive lens to read the book through. Yeah. Um, I don't, and, I don't, uh, I don't know that I've heard, this particular book appealed to to defend mm -hmm. any sort of continuity with the episcopate ever before but right this is this, yeah. is, this is very good <laughs> it's good stuff right Speechless. and what's, what's even wilder this is so this wasn't in my notes what's what's even wilder is that that verse one in chapter six that that phrase working together with him mm -hmm. um that's that word is in the greek synergeo which is where we get the mm. word synergy from yeah um, so like the, we could translate that as, as we are synergizing with God, we are working with God, not just in like our coworkers, but like our work is God's work and God's work is our work. Yeah. That's what he's saying. Wow. Right. Um, 
that's it's wild. Okay, so to not get too bogged down in there, uh, but we'll go on to the end of the book, Second um, Corinthians uh, thirteen verses one through four, uh, and then verses nine through ten. Paul says, uh, "This is this is after he's been at his most irritated. Like the chapters uh, ten through twelve is just this rant. It's wild. Uh, go read it um, and like and inflect it with some sarcasm, and it's really entertaining." Uh, anyway, so he's finished that up, and he begins uh, chapter 13 by saying, This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That tells you that when he's coming, it's not going to be fun, right? He's coming in as like a judge coming to court. Um, I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them, warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. That's jumping jumping to verse 9. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. So I've just given you kind of a smattering of some examples throughout the book. Um, to hope, I've tried to spread it out so that you get an idea that kind of throughout the book, Paul is, is making this argument, apostolic ministry vis-a-vis the, the laity or the people of Corinth, right? And here, this is just kind of the crowning, um, the crown of his argument here. He's coming as a judge, right? This is judgment language. This is visitation language, right? And he even says, so he picks up on the same thing that we saw in verse five, that actually Christ is speaking through him. Um, But he's also going so far as to say um, that Christ's judgment, Christ's Christ's work in power is the very same judgment and power that Paul and Timothy will bring to bear when they come to visit, Mm. Right. Um, so he says, uh, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. That means that they are bringing with them Jesus's judgment. Right? Which is why he says, for this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, because I don't want to have to be severe in the use of my authority that God has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Right? I don't know that you can have a more like, powerful and clear argument for the fact that Paul sees the apostolic ministry as something that, A, on the one hand, is, is a separate office from the, uh, the elder, from because the, the elders are the ones who are receiving this letter. Right? Right. Um, so he sees the apostolic ministry as something that is over and above the elder and of the laity, um, and that he is actually bringing the presence of Christ in a particular way. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think looking at looking at Second uh, Corinthians as Paul's sort of uh, manifesto as to what he sees the apostolic ministry to be, uh, I, I don't think it's a very big move for Ignatius to say actually no um, reverence the bishop as you would Jesus Christ, right? Uh, because what we're, this is, again, this is ambassador language. This is, um, representative is not a powerful enough word for us anymore uh, because we we don't see representation um, as 
as realistically, as really as first century people did. Um, but in this context, if someone is an ambassador, they are the, the presence of Christ. We actually see this throughout the Old Testament even um, in that. So when the angel of the Lord shows up to people, the angel of the Lord uses first person language to speak for God. Hmm. Right. When the angel of the Lord shows up to people, he speaks and he appears to Abraham. He says, I am going to do this. Right. That's because the angel, the messenger of the Lord, when someone is 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 sent as an ambassador, as a representative of a presence, they are that person's presence to the point that an angel of the Lord can say, I, the first person speaking for God, in the same way, Paul very clearly says, Christ is speaking in me yeah. as an ambassador, right? Um, and so I don't think it's a very big leap for us uh, to say that actually St. Ignatius, he's He's really just passing on what he received from the apostolic church. He's really passing on what he what he has received um, from the apostles, which he was again he was only one generation away from. Yeah, so that was a lot. That's probably a bit of a fire hose. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, what what comments or comments or questions do you have from that? Yeah. Well, I, honestly, I just I kind of just want to sit in silence and just process that because that's. <laughs> That's that is a paradigm shift for me in terms of that entire yeah. that entire book. Um, yeah, I think it's very powerful, and I think it um, it really demonstrates that any conception of the early church and the various offices in it, specifically focusing in on the office of apostle, as mm -hmm. simply a kind of organizational status as opposed to a sacramental reality is is misplaced right. so we see very clearly yeah. here that paul is understanding this as we are icons of jesus christ that bring about yeah. his presence and if we right. understand that and we understand the apostolic ministry as then being passed on through apostolic succession yeah. we have we have to reckon with that that's that's something right. we have to address so yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't have a whole lot to say yeah. beyond that. I, I, I want you to continue. Yeah. I feel like I'm sitting in a seminar yeah. listening right now. This is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Great. Great. Uh, yeah. I don't have a whole lot of other things to say besides uh, what I think is really important for us to realize as we kind of come to terms with this is that if this is what the apostolic ministry is, if this is what the early church understood, if this is how the apostles understood themselves, um, then as apostles begin dying out, you really have to ask, is God going to rob the church of his presence? Mm. Because if you're going to make an argument that the apostolic ministry ended with the apostles, that's the question you have to reckon with, right? Does God really expect his church to go on without the presence of Christ in this way? I don't, I don't think so. I don't think we can make that argument. And even just from an anthropological standpoint, um, as the apostles begin dying out, of course, there's going to be a great anxiety to ensure that this kind of ministry doesn't die out. Right. Right. Uh, and so we see, we can actually see, I think, St. Ignatius as evidence that there was a very seamless sort of transition to see the episcopos, the bishop, uh, that that office becomes delimited to the apostolic ministry rather than sharing it between the apostle and the presbyter as we saw in the apostolic era, right? So yeah. we can see this, this historical transition as the apostles die out. One temptation for the church 
could have been to say, um, well, let's lower the bar for a standard of someone being an apostle, right? So previously in the apostolic era, it was understood that an apostle had to have been an eyewitness of Jesus in the flesh, right? Mm. Um, the, the temptation of the church could have been, as the apostles died out, to say, oh, well, let's make the, the apostolate someone who really knows Jesus, who really loves Jesus, who is a really good administrator, right? But they didn't do that. They knew that that, that office was irreplaceable, right? Right. So instead, they could have just allowed that to die out, or they could have allowed the episcopate to step in um, as the successors to the apostles, right? And that's precisely what we see uh, Paul um, raising up Timothy as a bishop, right? So he's right. the bishop in Ephesus, which is why uh, the books, books of uh, two books of Timothy, to Timothy, are all about hey, here's the requirements uh, for ordin ordination. Um, don't forget to get this been laid upon you. Don't lay hands on people hastily. We see that Timothy is acting as as a as a bishop. He's not acting as an apostle. Right. Right. He has apostolic ministry. Um, Paul Paul is is including him us right. So the the authors of Second Corinthians are Paul and Timothy. Us refers to Timothy. He is including Timothy in the apostolic ministry, even though Timothy is not an apostle. He's a bishop. He's an episcopos, hmm. right? Uh, and so we see this transition happening as the apostles are are dying. That it's the Timothy type figures. It's the, it's those who share share an office like Timothy, who carry on this apostolic ministry because we see that Paul has already applied it to Timothy in Second Corinthians, right? So I think that's really important to highlight because otherwise we end up having to say, oh, okay, so our our overseer is really just a specific vocation of presbyter. Or did the apostolic ministry die out and cease with the death of the apostles? Uh, and I think we have to say no. Yeah. Because Paul doesn't call Timothy an apostle because he's not. He wasn't an eyewitness of Christ in the flesh. He's a bishop, but he's included in apostolic ministry. So he's an he's a successor to Paul. Yeah. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's yeah. very clear. So. Wow. Yeah, yeah I, I feel I just... like there's there's a lot of weeds. Yeah. Yeah, I was just gonna say I was uh, yeah. I was thinking uh, as as you were talking and going through first uh, or second Corinthians rather, and just showing all of that that context that for a lot of people I think for the most part it's gonna be the first time they've ever heard it that way. I w it brought to right. mind uh, chapter eleven of the Didache, which I believe was an apostolic, probably written sometime mm -hmm. during the time of the apostles. And verse four yep. says, let every apostle that cometh to you be received as the Lord. Um, right. So you have that language. And so if that's the apostolic yep. ministry and that's the way it's understood and it is passed on to Timothy, as I think you've demonstrated right. very clearly it was. Yeah. And we have to we have to recognize that as a continuing reality in the church today. And oh, my goodness, it raises right. the stakes for what we're dealing with in our contemporary time. When we look at a bishop when we have a visitation totally. of a bishop. We should be receiving yep. them as Christ himself, which is right. just like yeah. how many of us actually approach it that way? You know, even even those of us who right. have a Catholic polity, how many of us actually mm -hmm. have that kind of recognition? Um, right. Exactly. Yeah. So as a <clears throat> as a final note, yeah, um, maybe a final disclaimer, I should say. Um, Paul understands. So I, I think it's it's important to point out that last verse that I read where he says for these 
For this reason, I write these things to you while I'm away from you, that when I come, it may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. What I think is really important, especially in light of um, a lot of the abuse of authority that we see that we've seen throughout history and and today, um, that the authority that the Lord has given Paul is for building up. It's not for tearing down. Hmm. So the implication of what Paul says here is that as if if Paul were to step out as an apostolic minister and begin to tear down, he's no longer under the authority of the Lord. Hmm. Right. Um, and for every, every person who's been ordained, we make a vow of obedience to our bishop, but there's a caveat and that caveat is in all things godly, mm-hmm. right? Because anything that is not godly will inevitably tear down only that, which is godly can build up. Right. So I think a really important disclaimer as we talk about this, because it is wild, the implications, as you pointed out. That if a bishop really is the ambassador of Christ, then like we should greet him as Christ, right? That is a massive implication. It's wild, um, and that as people will be quick, quick to point out, the um, the opportunity for abuse there is insane. Yeah, and so it's really important to emphasize that this authority is given for building up, which means that as soon as anyone steps out of that office of building up, that that role of, of building up, they are no longer under the uh, operating in the authority of Christ, right? They are no longer standing as that, that ambassador of Christ. Um, I just think that's really important for us to point out. And it's a good reminder for, for, for those of us who are called into holy orders is that um, our, our vocation um, as ministers of Christ is meant for building up and it's not for tearing down. Yeah. We have to keep that in front of us at all times. Yeah, mm, that's good. Very, very yeah. good. Yeah, powerful reminder. Um, it, I think, brings, even though uh, James didn't necessarily call out a specific office when he said, not many of you should become teachers, for you'll be judged mm-hmm. by a, a stricter standard, I think. The the implication right. of that is, especially those who are placed in a position where they are actually the reality of Jesus Christ to the people in, in persona Christi, to yeah. the, to the right. highest degree. The stakes yeah. are high in both directions. Um, so, right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Well, th- this has been an yeah. absolutely fascinating, wonderful, um, informative discussion. Um, and I, I really, I really think that this is going to, um, going to do very well. I think a lot of people are going to dig into this and hopefully just open the scriptures uh, in a whole new way and, and, and see, Really, the I I'm so blown away by what you did with Second Corinthians. Still, my my brain's still reeling yeah. from that. But I think what's so cool is it's it's not only is it demonstrating the biblical nature of the episcopate, but it is also mm-hmm. showing a profound continuity f- from history to scripture. Um, right. Where I think yeah. sometimes when I hear discussions on this, there is such a, and I said this at the beginning, there's such a historical theological emphasis. What did the church fathers yeah. say? How did this right. practice throughout church history? That it almost sometimes feels like we're trying to ignore scripture because the case there isn't yeah. as strong. And I think right. you just cracked that, uh, mm. that uh, just totally demolished that accusation. I think you, you demonstrated yeah. very well that it is clearly taught in scripture and that is why the church practiced this universally very early on um right yeah 
So, yeah, yeah do, do, do you have any <laughs> final things you'd like to, to add before we wrap up? Yeah, my, my final exhortation, honestly, is um, to any listener, um, any honestly, any of you who are listening, if, if you found this compelling, I encourage you to do this. Or if you have questions um, or maybe are not sure about my reading of Second Corinthians, I highly encourage you just to sit down and read through the whole book in one sitting. Mm. Um, that's what did it for me. Uh, I never I never saw this stuff in Second Corinthians until I sat down and read the whole thing in one sitting. Uh, because, of the, again, the way that we read it in chapters, um, if you read it in the lectionary, which I think is good. And don't hear me saying it's not good. Um, but when that's the only way that we read through books of, of Scripture. We miss the overarching themes. We, we miss the way that all of these themes tie together to make one uh, cohesive argument. Um, and not all books of the Bible are like that. Um, but I think especially this letter where Paul has, has one goal really in mind as he's writing the letter, um, I think the the cohesive argument is is really um it's really powerful to see it and so you only see that in in one sitting uh, it doesn't take that long to read uh the chapters are short it's only 13 chapters you can do it probably in, in 30 to 45 minutes um if even that uh and it's worth it so yeah, yeah i think regardless if you like it do it don't just don't just take my word for it read the whole thing in one sitting if you have questions before you say that i'm a heretic uh, just go sit down and, and read through the whole book in one sitting. And I think you'll see it. Um, just again, just pay close attention to Paul's use of, of us and us and we versus you. Yeah. Well, father, this has been a, a wonderful conversation. Um, yeah, it, it, maybe this is the first time that I've done a podcast where I genuinely feel speechless because my brain is reeling so much. <laughs> right now. Um, but man, thank you so much for coming on. This was a joy, and I, I hope maybe maybe to do it again and explore more of the historical uh, theology aspect too, and kind of build off of what we just talked yeah. about. Yeah, that'd be very good. Yeah, so, that'd be really cool. Yeah, yeah thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. It's always a pleasure, man. Yeah, yeah, you bet. I this really enjoyed awesome. it. God bless. Thank you.